0: Hello, this is Joseph Scholls. Welcome to the Deep Culture Podcast, where we explore culture and the science of mind. I'm here with Yvonne, my co-host. How are you doing, Yvonne?
1: I'm fine. Hi, Joseph. Good evening.
0: Uh, Good morning from California. I'm supposed to be in Tokyo, but... Increased COVID travel restrictions have kept me here. There are wildfires burning. The sky is hazy with a red sun. Uh, It's a a very interesting, intense time to be here. Today we're going to be discussing Edward Hall. Uh, Yvonne, is Edward Hall famous?
1: It probably depends to whom you ask. I know his name, and there might be more people who know his name. There might be even more people who know his work. And uh, we're probably going to discuss that more in depth today. But for me, maybe more people know concepts like high and low context communication than they might know Edward T. Hall by his name.
0: Right. So some of the concepts that he came up with are now common, Uh But I I agree. I think a lot of people don't know his name. I'm a huge fan of his. He was an intercultural pioneer. Uh, In 1959, he published The Silent Language, and that's considered the starting point for the study of intercultural communication. I think he was way ahead of his time in his understanding of culture and the unconscious mind. I discovered the silent language on an airplane flying to Boston. That book was on a background reading list for graduate school. And at that time, I had been living in Mexico and Japan, and I'd had these powerful experiences there. But reading his book, he was putting into words things that I felt, but I couldn't explain like how in Mexico, people use time differently. And he was analyzing these subtle cultural patterns like time and how we use space and how those patterns shape our mind. It was exciting for me to discover words that could go to the things that I'd been experiencing. So Yvonne, what image do you have of Edward Hall?
1: Well, I don't have such a clear image of you about Hall, yeah, you have this clear moment in this airplane, and it's more that I've been knowing his work, and, and I was impressed by it, but actually I do use it with people rather often, those concepts about time, monochronic time, polychronic time, even people who have, are having bicultural marriages, sometimes don't have these words present, and they have all well, issues with each other, and once they understand, and really understand, well, I do things linearly, one thing at a time, and the other person, for instance, has more this multitasking kind of way of living. Time is is more elastic, can be so different. So that's what I really find intriguing by his work, about time, it's about space, really about fundamentals that are very useful.
0: And fundamental in that they are subtle but powerful, which is an interesting combination.
1: Yeah, and talking about obvious, that's one quote of, I think it was the second book that he says, and I've even written it down. It's frequently the most obvious and taken for granted and therefore the least studied aspects of culture that influences behavior in the deepest and most subtle ways. Um, and I took this quote also as as a quote in my the book I published myself because I think it's so powerful. It's not sometimes in the large things, but it can be in s- such small things, and we forget about them. They're a blind spot. They're on are in the automatic in the autopilot, and we take them for granted. But they're not, and and that's meaningful.
0: And maybe that's one reason that it's the tiny little moments when we're traveling in a foreign country or we have a foreign experience, the tiny little moments that stick with us because they are touching some very fundamental issues. They're not actually such tiny little things. In today's episode, we're going to look at what makes Edward Hall's work special. It has three parts. Part one, The Shape of Your Head. Hall was interested in cultural difference, but to appreciate his perspective, we need to get into our mental time machine and go back before his time, say 150 years, to see how were people thinking about cultural difference. What do you think, Yvonne? People
1: were not traveling that much and not that far. There were only a couple of people traveling and they brought with them those exotic goods or coffee or tea. And they had been taking that and carrying their stories. And maybe it was more talking about foreign places as exotic and strange. (laughs) um, You know, people made up their own stories about these strange and, and, and foreign places.
0: And it's not easy to understand if you hear all these stories and you see that people are acting in a different way and they may look differently and they may live in different buildings and they may eat different food. How do you make sense of all of that in The earlier days of this field, in the 19th century, people were talking a lot about nature versus nurture. This was the starting point, I think.
1: That was the starting point. And uh, until today, even in training sessions, I hear people say that, you know, that's nature. No, it's nurture. So you get into this debate about either or, you know, it's either this or that. When you go back in time, uh, it's interesting how... Or maybe the paradigm has changed.
0: It has. I think that in the 19th century, for example, the idea that nature controlled behavior or influenced behavior was very, very common. The idea that race would affect how people behaved. Or phrenology, Are you? do you know about phrenology? Phrenology was a pseudoscience, something totally disproven now, but something that many people took seriously in the 19th century the uh the the idea that the shape of your head explain your character because somehow parts of your brain are developed and they push the skull out so like if you feel the back of your skull and it's rounded this is supposed to be the place for parental love and if it's rounded you have a lot of parental love and i'm looking at a, a some phrenology pictures and looking this, I can see that my nose is a kind of pointed nose. And according to this phrenology chart, that's a feminine nose, and my pointed chin is a kind of feminine chin. So uh, this idea that the shape of our head influences our behavior was a pseudoscience in the 19th century. But it goes together with this whole idea that biology is very closely related to behavior.
1: Yes. Yes. And we've also seen the downside of this thinking, of course, which is really why it's important to have a look at history
0: and, and also recent history. Because that kind of thinking is at the root of a lot of racism and prejudice.
1: But then, of course, we had those early cultural anthropologists and they had took a different stance uh, on this.
0: Yes, yeah, so for example, the early cultural anthropologists, people like Franz Boas, They had a very different idea about this. And so I've actually got a quote from Franz Boas and he was, he's considered the father of cultural anthropology, I would think, what he would have called the scientific study of culture. His quote is, while individuals differ, biological differences are small. There's no reason to believe that one race is by nature so much more intelligent, endowed with great willpower or emotionally more stable than another so this was from 1910 in his book race language and culture and i think this statement was uh, uh, against the grain it was against this earlier paradigm that biology mm. determines so much
1: now oh, really interesting then you know talking about history and time that in 1910 he already proposed this and also when working with his student and one of his students was of course the famous Margaret Mead um, and they continued working on all those topics and, and actually what she did and, and I think well she was a powerful lady back then she went on uh, age 23 to Samoa um, and later she wrote the book Coming of Age in Samoa but actually what she research was on, on the tipping point of nature and nurture she had a look at adolescence so that's the time in life of people that the nature is really important you know it's about sexual orientation exploration and becoming from a girl a woman etc so what happens there and there was this notion that probably everywhere around the world youth is rebellious and then you know the puberty and she found out no it's here it's not you know people seem to be rather relaxed and and have have a good time and there's no rebellion so there was the cultural element and um that was influential work back then
0: I think she was writing for an audience of Americans who assumed that certain things were simply universal everywhere. They were biologically built in, such as young people being rebellious. And she found that she was arguing that, no, many of the things that we think are universal and perhaps biological are actually culture cultural influence, that we are shaped in important ways by culture. And so there's that paradigm shift that you were talking about, shifting from the idea that, nat- that nature is important to shifting to the idea that nurture or culture and the environment is important. And of course, anthropologists were trying to understand these individual cultural communities like Margaret Mead going to Samoa. Edward Hall was trained as an anthropologist, but let's talk for a minute about what made Hall different. And that takes us to part two Shaking Hands with Hall.
1: So what was different about Hall? How how was he ahead of his time, Joseph?
0: He was an anthropologist by training, but he was very interested in what happens between cultures. And he didn't use standard anthropological methods in his research. He didn't look for an isolated cultural community and ask about genealogy or ceremonies. For him behavior was just the tip of the iceberg because he saw culture as shaping our mind. He worked with Native American communities, uh, Navajo and Hopi, and he tells a story of needing to learn how to shake hands all over again. When he was working with Navajo communities, he said that an American, Anglo-American handshake And I don't know what your image, Yvonne, is of an Anglo-American handshake is, but for me, it's like a very firm, like pumping, you know, like pump, 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 especially (laughs) kind of business handshake. Is that the image you have of an American handshake?
1: Yeah, before you started explaining, I already had this instant moment that I sort of felt this handshake as indeed as a firm handshake, and maybe a male, a masculine handshake. Right, exactly. Know, like, that was my image. <laughs> right.
0: And and Hall said, you know, that, that, that an Anglo-American handshake is a kind of assertion of your individuality and your self-confidence. But he saw the handshake as he experienced it with this with the Navajo community he was working with more as a chance to kind of ease into another person's presence, that you grasp the hand gently and you don't make so much direct eye contact. So his point was that a handshake is more than a handshake. There's a whole world of meaning behind that handshake and that those complexities are all natural to us he was very perceptive about these subtle but powerful cultural patterns. And you mentioned earlier high and low context communication. So this is like nonverbal elements of communication. The study of chronemics, I guess, is the technical word, the study of time, uh, monochronic and polychronic time. I think these are pretty common ideas in the intercultural field now, wouldn't you say?
1: Oh, yes. I think many people talk about these things as, as they take it for granted. But back then, it was fairly new to distinguish that there were differences in time and, and, and space, for instance, it's interesting because sometimes I hear you say that uh, he was ahead of his time and it also relates to the brain and mind sciences. How, how do you see that? How does Hall connect to the brain and mind sciences?
0: Well, that's bringing us to part three, which is the brain scan revolution. Yes, uh, he does connect, I think, to the brain and mind sciences. The brain scan revolution refers to new technology that allows us to do brain imaging of people in real time while they do different tasks. You know the story of Phineas Gage, Yvonne? Yes, I think it was a rather sad story, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it's uh... in the end.
1: Well, <laughs> well, in the beginning and in the end. <laughs>
0: uh, yes, <laughs> I am he... not
1: sure about the time in between, but
0: well, it wasn't pleasant for him. I don't think he was uh, working. He was working on railroad construction, and there was a an accident, and there was an explosion, and an iron rod went through his skull just underneath the eye, and it passed completely through his skull. But he never lost consciousness and it didn't kill him. But, which is amazing. It's, yeah. it's first of all amazing that it didn't kill him and that he remembered it. But what was remarkable in addition to that was that people reported that his personality changed after this accident. This was some of the first direct evidence that different parts of the brain are associated with particular kinds of mental functions or particular elements of behavior or personality. This was some of the first direct evidence of that. And at the time, the only way you could really study the brain was looking at the brains of dead people, and you can't see anything in real time. The Technology that we have available now allows us to look at different elements of brain function in real time so that we can say, think of X, and we can put you in an FMRI machine, for example, and look at patterns of of brain activation. It's important to say that these a, a brain scan does not necessarily explain how things work. And there's a lot of debate about how to interpret the kinds of results that you get from these, forms of, from these kinds of technology. But it's certainly true that we have all kinds of information and research about cognitive processes that we didn't have before.
1: No, exactly. Which is intriguing in itself, you know, that humankind is (laughs) in this level of complexity and we can do all these things. Um, But then, you know, you and I, we were talking about culture, intercultural communication. So how does uh, this research, brain research, relate to culture? But but so far, what does it say? Tell us.
0: Well, for me, it's it raises a really interesting question you know as an intercultural educator and trainer that there's all these there are all these different definitions of culture and anthropologists for example argue about definitions of culture so that raises a question if a neuroscientist wants to study culture how would they even define what culture is and yes and
1: what I yeah what I understood is that neuroscience have only one simple definition of culture which is patterns
0: yeah that's one way to look at uh, how neuroscientists think about culture culture are fundamentally patterns they are patterns within us they're embodied within us uh, in our cognitive function and so their cognitive function can be shaped by by culture so you can find those uh, cultural patterns within the patterns of cognition but those patterns are also out in the world they're embedded out in the world and of course if the patterns inside of us are similar to the patterns outside of us then we simply don't notice it because we're just functioning naturally in a familiar cultural environment but if the patterns inside of us, what we're familiar with are different from what's outside of us, then we're experiencing cultural difference. And it's that gap that is cultural difference. So Edward Hall was looking for these very subtle, but powerful cultural patterns. And now brain and mind science is is helping us learn a lot about these cultural patterns that we were not able to research before.
1: Isn't it exciting? What do you think about Hall himself? You know, he has passed away. He hasn't lived through this era of cultural neuroscience. What would he have thought about this?
0: Well, he was a realist, I think, when it came to his understanding of intercultural relations. He felt that because patterns of cultural difference are so subtle and so hard for us to become aware of, that intercultural contact often brings misunderstanding and conflict. And I think he would not be surprised at the level of conflict and division that we are seeing in this part of the century. At the same time, he was an optimist in the sense that he felt that by understanding those patterns within us, we can really have these transformational experiences. So I think in that sense, he's an optimist. At the individual level, he's an optimist, but not necessarily at the the level of society.
1: So what do the brain and mind sciences tell us about this important question about nature and nurture?
0: (sighs) Deep question. Uh, (laughs) It's complex, first of all, but I, I think we can safely say that the mind is not simply a blank slate. It's not all nurture. Uh, we have cognitive structures which are shaped by our evolutionary past. And uh, therefore, there's an interaction between our cognitive structures and the environment so that there's a kind of nexus or an interplay between nature and nurture. One example is language. We are born with a capacity to be to develop language, but we need that linguistic input from the environment for that capacity to develop. So if someone does not is not exposed to language as a child, then they do not develop linguistic ability like everyone else. Also, our perceptual systems have evolved to live in this world. For example, newborn babies pay attention to faces more than they pay attention to random patterns. So our mental systems evolved with these kind of specific features. But of course, a baby needs to recognize its mother. So it's very hard to call it nature or nurture.
1: No, I agree with you. It has to be, it's both. And and it's both in a very complex way. And it's only, you make it more superficial when it's the either or
0: question. And it's something not only that scientists have to ask, but it's something that anyone who has foreign experiences needs to figure out. If you're in a foreign country, someone smiles at you And you have to think to yourself, does this smile mean what I think it means? Is a smile something that's the same everywhere, or is that something that depends on culture? So this question of nature and nurture is not simply a philosophical question. It's something that interculturalists or anyone uh, having foreign experiences have to deal with on an everyday basis. For sure. So... Hall was good at identifying patterns, and he understood that the unconscious mind was shaped by culture, and we now understand unconscious cognition better than we had in the past. In this podcast, we'll be talking some more about these unconscious patterns, and hopefully we'll look a little bit at some of this new research, but also... I'm looking forward to talking to individuals about their experiences with these cultural patterns. Finally, Yvonne, as regards to Edward Hall, what would you say is inspirational or more meaningful for you about his work?
1: Well, what is inspirational is it's about those small things that can be so powerful and and important, what you say about a smile, but it can be anything. It can be literally anything. I have a friend and she got a baby uh, in South Africa. She's a Dutch person herself. And it takes a village to raise a child. and, And she knew that she had been living in South Africa for a long period of time, but it was only when she became a mom herself and had her newborn daughter in her arms, that she experienced what does it mean. And that's exactly what cultural difference is about. But it's also when it can be in little things that the child is being taken over from hand to hand, from mom to mom. And um there are more, people who take care of the child so the whole notion we can think about it but when the moment we feel it it's it's so different and i think that's what's also what is in his work it was not about theory it was also about making sense of what is happening between you and i I
0: really like this idea that it's about making sense Uh, and those things can be very hard to make sense of and your story about child raising just reminded me of an American woman that I know living in Paris who was pregnant. And she said to me, you know, in the United States, people touch your stomach when you're pregnant. And in France, nobody touches my stomach and it feels so cold. Now, that's what she reported to me. I don't know enough about that to have an opinion about that. But just something small like that can feel so powerful. And how do you make sense of that? What does that mean? I know that for me, before I discovered Hall, I remember trying to talk to people about cultural difference, but it was not easy to talk about cultural difference. And I had struggled to adapt to life in Japan and, and, speaking Japanese. And I had these identity questions like wondering where I belonged and how long did I want to stay in this in this foreign country. But trying to talk to people was very difficult because if you haven't lived these kinds of experience, it's hard to understand them. So when I read Hall, it was very reassuring.
1: Yeah, and it also shows how difficult it is to adjust to keep in connection all the time it takes extra effort and uh, it also gives additional questions and also about self and so if there's a book like or work like his and, and that's reassuring it's so helpful
0: yes and let's hope that all the bridge people who are going to be listening to this podcast can also get some reassurance from each other as we share our deep culture experiences I think it's about time to wrap up this episode. So please subscribe to the Deep Culture Podcast. Rate us, write a comment, get in touch, and share your thoughts. You can write us at dcpodcast at japanintercultural.org or leave a comment on our website, www.japanintercultural.org or just do a web search for Podcast Japan Intercultural Institute. This podcast is sponsored by the Japan Intercultural Institute, an NPO that's dedicated to intercultural education and research. Our sound engineer is Robinson Fritz, and Chris Koyama is our production assistant. So thanks, Yvonne, for sharing this time with me today.
1: Oh, yes, but it was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Okay, and we'll see everyone next time.
1: look forward to see everybody again.